Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com slash smartest for your free audiobook download. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Proops. That's a hit, a hit, a hit, hot, hot. Uh, welcome, one and all, the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, once again, takes to the ether here at the salubrious confines of Bar Lubitsch here in Western Hollywood, where the booze flows so freely, as does the vitriol as the evening progresses. Everybody hoist a high tankard as we start the new year in earnest, once and for all. Second weekend, there's no turning back. Whatever the fuck your plans were for last year, drop them and move forward. How many people, uh, by nodding their head out there in Etherland, tried to keep the holiday going an extra three days at the beginning of the year by drinking more? Thank you. Me too. January 3rd, and I was like, I'm really not ready for this shit to start again. And because show business is like high school in almost every way, it doesn't start again. Uh, There's people who aren't back from holiday yet. Really? The sound sounds a little pingy to me tonight. I don't mean to be complaining right off the bat. What do you think, Matt? You bringing that down? I get a, I'm getting a kind of a pingy. I hope it isn't pingy out there in Germany or Madagascar or wherever you're. I don't even think it's called Madagascar and hasn't been in about 35 years. I think the Malagasy Republic is what it's called, as if anybody. If you are listening in the Malagasy Republic, God fucking bless you. Surely there's something else to do, like hustle tourists or kill a lemur or something. Ow, I just stuck a star in my nose. Damn these lights back here. It's awfully dim, and I'm blind as a, I'm blind as a mole. Mm. I wish I was blind as a bat. That means I could send out weird radar signals and find out where everything is. A bat would never hit its nose with a straw. A bat would go ping, 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 and then there's a fucking straw there. And then, and then suck all the blood from your body and give you some horrible uh, fecal-borne disease. Uh, so happy New Year's once again. We're back in Los Angeles. Uh, where the fuck were we? La- oh, we were in Los Angeles last week, weren't we? We were at the comic book store last week, and I'm more comfortable in saloons than I am in comic book stores. <laughs> we're going to start with nothing but corrections at Endemirata and uh, uh, fixing what is broken in- here in the Proopcast because um, I made about a million mistakes in the last show. <laughs> And I am, as you know, the smartest man in the world. And all the literal-minded people out there who interview me over the over the years go uh, over the year go. uh, um, Okay, you're the smartest man in the world, and I'm always like, it's a joke. First of all, even if you were the smartest man in the world, you would be smart enough not to call yourself the smartest man in the world. I go, if you Google the smartest man in the world, it comes up some weird foreign guy, you know, Hippos Kapiakos or something, and he's got an IQ of 210 and shit, but is he happy, is my question. Uh, and I'll, as you know, being smart, a double-edged sword, really. I mean, it's, it, it's fun to be smart sometimes, because you can go, people will go, hey, who won the 19, you know, 16 World Series? And you'll go, well, Chicago lost. <laughs> um, but it's not... That rewarding sometimes. Uh, like, for instance, today I was at a store and the change was $1.89 and the woman didn't have any pennies. And I waited for, oh, I don't know, a year or two. And finally I went, I really don't need the four cents. You can give me one eighty five, And she went, no, I can't. Like, just like that. Like a, like a Maria... 
It was like a Maria Bamford character. You know when she does those exquisite characters? The half-witty characters, you know? She went, no, I can't. And so I waited 10 minutes. And a guy came, and then they opened a thing of pennies and gave me four pennies. No one wants pennies. No one wants pennies. I mean, some people want pennies. I didn't want pennies. I adore them. They're fun to collect and trade. And I am making a scale model of the Parthenon at my home. So let's start with the corrections. First of all, I was asked a question last week uh, by my friend Jeannie, who works at Yahoo. And she said, what books did you read when you was little? And I read uh, lots of books when I was little. Uh, I, read, I read from an early age. Uh, Dr. Seuss, as I said, my favorite first author that I can remember. I, I did not look up Viking Adventure, so I can't remember who wrote that. I also was given a, um, all the A.A. A. Milne books, right, When We Are Six and... Uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh, House on Pooh Corner, was it? Uh, and then uh, the only thing I remember is uh, they're changing guards at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. Alice is marrying one of the guards. A soldier's life is terrible hard, says Alice. Um, and then I had a, 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 like a Charles Gardner verse, not the Robert Louis Stevenson one. Um, it was like this child, you know, as a compendium of poetry. And the one I always remember, and I'm going to d- say it now because it, it fits in with America right this goddamn second. The state of things in this country and the economy and the way the rich are treating the poor and the way the poor are being treated and the way the government's acting. William Blake, Auguries of Innocence, the dog starved at the master's gate predicts the ruin of the state. That I remember from when I was little. But the books I read that I wanted to mention were, uh, uh, they're called the Tripods Trilogy, and the author was John Christopher, in fact. I had an assist on that one. His real name was Samuel Yude, or Yaud, um, born in 1922, still alive, God bless him, according to this uh, site that I went to, a British author best known for the science fiction writings under the pseudonym John Christopher, including the novel The Death of Grass and the Young Adult adult-oriented novel, the tr- series, The Tripods. He won the Guardian Award in 71, and, the, and uh, the, this is the best-named award of all time, the Deutscher Hugen de Literature Priest in 1976. <laughs> and this is what I love about this author. He's prolific. I'm not going to go through all the books. These are just the pseudonyms he writes under. <laughs> you know, like Stephen King's got Richard Bachman or whatever, and everybody's got a pseudonym. Stanley Winchester, Hilary Ford, William Godfrey, William Vine, Peter Graff, Peter Nichols, and Anthony Rye. So if you see a book by any of them, it's John Christopher, uh, i.e. Samuel Yud. The Tripods Trilogy, just to recap quickly, uh, it's from 67, 68, and 69. That's, now I know that I read them when I was little. Uh, the White Mountains, um, The City of Golden Lead, and The Pool of Fire. And then there's a prequel that he bloody wrote in 1988 called When the Tripods Came. Uh, heavily lifted from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And the, the book I forgot to mention... Uh, uh, but the tripods, right, uh, come and they walk around the tripods. That's the part that's lifted from War of the Worlds, right? The tripods come out of the ships in War of the Worlds, and they shoot people with a primitive well, – it's not a laser beam because it's the 1890s when Wells wrote it or early 1900s. Uh, and they can destroy everything with these little boxes they carry. Well, the tripods come in these books as well, and then they live in these weird – I think one's in the Panama Canal and one's in Europe and whatnot. And then the kids overthrow the, the, the alien domination of the Earth eventually. Uh, in any case – uh, the book that I didn't mention was uh, The Time Machine by Wells, because that was also in this volume. And The Time Machine is a cracker, and actually probably more exciting than War of the Worlds. Uh, he goes back in time, right? And if you've ever seen the movie, that especially the Guy Pierce movie, <laughs> is not a winner, okay? I love Guy Pierce more than life itself. If you saw... Uh, Mildred Pierce from last year. Uh, Mildred Pierce, hard to improve on. Any movie with Joan Crawford where she goes, I learned, uh, I learned waitressing the hard way. Cut to Adam and Eve on a raft, right? That's just, there's nothing, nothing better than that. 
uh, Guy Pierce plays the cad boyfriend in that one. Uh, and then Guy Pierce is in The King's Speech, and he plays uh, Edward Windsor, the unbelievably louche, indolent, Nazi-loving uh, <laughs> a king who did not resign his throne because he loved Hal uh, Wallace Simpson. He resigned his throne because the government of England made him because he was a goddamn Nazi sympathizer. And he never went back to England, not a day in his life, not ever, 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 ever. So that'll tell you what happened to him. But in any case, you remember the scene where... Uh, 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 who, who plays uh, uh, King George in it? Um, Colin Firth walks up to him at a party, and he's kind of drunk, and he's going downstairs to get some champagne or whatever. And he says to Eddie, what have you been doing? And he goes, kinging, old boy. <laughs> kinging. There's also a remake of The Count of Monte Cristo with um, James Caviezel, and Guy Pearce was in that as well and plays that bad guy, and he's awesome. But the Guy Pearce time machine... As my friend Jeff would say, stinkeroo. And um, but Jeremy Irons plays the Morlock in it. And instead of being a Morlock who just like in the George Powell when they have glittery eyes and they just go like that, when he walks into the room, uh, Jeremy Irons is wearing an unbelievable white prosthetic head, a giant weird scallopy backbone, a giant long white wig, and I'm going to overuse the word giant a lot in this sentence. And he turns. Uh, Guy Pierce walks in, and Jeremy Irons turns to him and goes, "Do I surprise you?" <laughs> That's the best part of the whole fucking movie. Really, really good. Really good. That part's awesome. So the time machine is a cracker. And he falls in love with Mina, and they kind of almost have sex. They don't really say it because it's an H.G. Wells book, and I don't think he did that. But uh, the, the, the machine gets moved because the Morlocks move it from where it's landed. And uh, so when he, when, he ha- when he gets it, he has to move it back so that when he goes back a zillion years to the future he doesn't end up in a wall or something when he rematerializes and then this is the part of the time machine that's in none of the movies ever 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 he gets back in the machine and he's just escaped the Morlocks and um he, as you know, the Morlocks raise the uh, uh, the Illinois to, as food. The, the blonde, beautiful people of the world who all look like Paris Hilton, right? They all have p- orange skin in the movie and white hair and are stupid, but are nubile. You have entered me. That feeleth good. You know, they're like that. And then Paul freezes the rings in the George Paul version. Then came the walls that, you know, not all that. So he leaves and he goes, he escapes the Morlocks. In the book, he goes 800,000 years into the future to the year 800,000 something something because his meter goes up that high, right? He's got a little Victorian meter. And when he gets there, there's a bunch of like kangaroo type creatures bouncing around that are kind of ropey and stupid. And he's like, oh, these are what people are. And he throws a rock and knocks one cold and picks it up and looks at it and goes, oh, fuck, they are people. And then goes back. And then goes back to England, gets a box of matches and some other shit, like a gun or something, and then fucking goes back to free the Eloy from the Morlocks. It's a very good one. All right. Spoiler alert. Uh, Because we were in a comic book store, uh, I I was trying to make a comic book quip, and someone tweeted me and said, I love when you pretend to know about comic books. And they totally caught me out, because I don't know fuck all. The last comic book I read was Judge Dredd, or American Flag, I think, was the last one I read. Uh, you know, dir- dirty duck. I don't actually need it. I, I don't know why I was grasping for my bag. Um, uh, and I said, Al- uh, you the kind of people that sit around and say Alan Moore sold out. Well, just so you know, I do know the difference between Frank Miller and Alan Moore. And Alan Moore never sold out. And this is an article I found in The Guardian from a month ago that was so goddamn funny. As you know, Frank Miller is a, I don't know, how would you describe it? A bit of a... That's it, fascist? Uh, and Alan Moore, Alan Moore looks like 
he should be in the movie Harry Potter, according to my wife. He has long beard, long hair, you know, crazy English hippie type. Uh, Moore wrote V for Vendetta. And for that, I love him and The Watchmen. And Frank Miller, of course, wrote um, Sin City and some other misogynistic bullshit. Now, here's the point. Uh, uh, Frank Miller said that Occupy is, and this was from this last year, just a month ago, is nothing short of a clumsy, poorly expressed attempt at anarchy from a bunch of iPhone, iPad-wielding, spoiled brats who should stop getting in the way of working people and find jobs for themselves because America is at war against a ruthless enemy, and that enemy, you'll be happy to know, is Al-Qaeda and Islamicism, <laughs> and our quote about what I'd... Uh, uh, right, uh, so... That's what Frank Miller said about Occupy. Now, if you want that, you can just turn on the TV any old time. Because that's what everybody says. Uh, so, therefore, it is nonsense. Alan Moore awesomely uh, said about Frank Miller, Frank Miller is someone whose work I've barely looked at for the past 20 years. I thought the Sin City stuff was unreconstructed misogyny. Which it was. 300 appeared to be wildly ahistoric. <laughs> if you remember in his version of 300, the Spartans do not wear armor in front of their bodies so that their rippling abs may rock you well into the night. You also may remember that Xerxes, the king of all Persia and Asia, is a weird uh, sort of shaved-headed gay guy with a, a Jane Child nose chain. <laughs> Don't want to fall in love. Ooh, love cuts just like a knife. You make that knife feel good. Uh, okay. A historic... Uh, <laughs> Uh, where was it? Oh, I've lost the quote there. Golly. Uh, an, uh, a historic homophobic and just completely misguided. I think there's been probably been a rather unpleasant sensibility apparent in Frank Miller's work for quite a long time. Miller's most recent work, Holy Terror, sees a new superhero, the fixer, take on the Al-Qaeda. Whoa. Hoopty doopty. Uh, didn't we kill everyone in the Al-Qaeda? Aren't they kind of at odds with each other now? And, and isn't Osama bin Laden dead while he was watching... Porn, was it? I thought we had a bunch of big wins last year. Remember? Uh, yeah. So I, I, Alan Moore did not sell out. Frank Miller didn't sell out either. He's true to his own creed, however unbelievably misguided it might be. Uh, I'm joking, of course. I also said that it was Joshua who was raised from the dead. I know it's Lazarus, okay? I spoke too quickly. I had spent a year, about a year ago, we were talking about the greatest story ever told, the Max von Sydow, uh, the, the one directed by George Stevens where Jesus is a six-and-a-half-foot-tall Swedish guy. <laughs> And Sal Minio's in it, and Van Heflin. It has the most abstruse cast of any Jesus movie ever. Uh, and I talked about Lazarus for ages in that one. Uh, Joshua, uh, of course, a different character. You may remember Joshua. Um, he, he took over for Moses, quite frankly, according to this. Uh, what would be, when I say this, I mean the Bible. Uh, his name was... According to this, uh, uh, the tribe of Ephraim, but Moses called him Yehoshua, which is Joshua, and that's in Numbers. Uh, and then he was born in Egypt, blah, blah, blah. He was the same age as Caleb, whom he is occasionally associated. Um, 
Joshua is a central character in the Hebrews Bible book of Joshua. Lazarus, uh, awesomely, figures in this story here. You can read his story in John uh, chapter 11. Uh, oh, yeah, I have a Bible. And I believe I stole it because it says placed by the Gideons. I have, I have no idea where I stole it from. I just know that I have a Bible. And it's a pretty cracking good one here, too. Uh, it doesn't say what hotel it's from. It just says the Gideons. It's really good, though. Re- beautiful. It's King James, which is why I like it. I don't like the New American Edition. I like thee and thine and unto and all that and begatting and all that. It makes it sound like Shakespeare wrote it, right? Same time period, right? King James. So uh, it makes it funner, quite frankly. It, it gives it a little more poetry. Uh, when you read the American Bible, and it's like, Jesus walked into town. You're like, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to read a synopsis. You know, I don't want to read Frank Miller's Bible. I want to read... Yeah, I want the Gene James version here. Uh, 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 the sisters, as you know, Mary and Martha. Again, as if someone was named Martha 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Common name. Like Sven or Kyle. Wow. Oh, uh, this is, by the way, I was very excited when I read this today, uh, that, that this is the chapter where Jesus wept, the shortest, quote in the, uh, the sh- shortest quotation in the entire Bible, John 11, uh, 35, because uh, um, everybody's crying because Lazarus has croaked, right, and, and they're all really sad, uh, uh, and he goes to see Mary and Martha, and they're fighting. The Jews who were with her uh, in the house and comforted her, and when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily, and she went out, followed her... And went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then, when Mary was come where Jesus was, so come on, you can't write better than that. When, when Mary was come where Jesus was, and the American version is like, Well, when Mary got there, there was Jesus. And saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died, not would not have, had not, right? And that, and that use of had. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. That's where he weeps, right? Because he's so sad. Then said to the Jews, uh, behold how he loved him. Then it gets down to the good part. Uh, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Hmm? And when he had spoken, he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. Now, hold on to your hats for this part. (laughs) Right? He just said... I, I, he looks up at God and goes, I know that I always hear you and shit, but I said it for everybody's benefit this time. So fucking come on, baby. Come on, dad. Let's go. I got a dead guy here. I just cried. I just cried. In front of all the Jews and Mary and Martha. I just cried. Jesus wept. He don't weep, he don't weep in any other place. Huh. And they said the dead came forth. Bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Um, he came out of the grave, bound hand and foot with a fucking napkin on his head. (laughs) 
The resurrection scene is so goddamn freaky. Um, after he gets resurrected in Matthew, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-three of uh, twenty-seven fifty-two. Let's go back two more because it's better to fitty. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Okay, there he is dying. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. This is at the moment of Jesus' death. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. 52. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. So the minute Jesus died, are you following this? And came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Fucking zombie infestation. This is, I'm reading from the Bible here. This isn't Frank Miller's Biopocalypse. Wow. That's a lot of fucking dead people getting up and running around. I love it. Good stuff. Uh, so it was Lazarus, not Joshua. Uh, Joshua, as you know, had a bottle of Geritol. Uh, thank you for remembering that. The two people that are old enough to remember this. I also said that Mookie Blaylock was the... Uh, I think I got the Pearl Jam Mookie Blaylock thing wrong. As you know, Pearl Jam, and if anybody's a fan of Pearl Jam, God bless you. <laughs> Whatever. I guess during the grunge period, you thought, well, there's Soundgarden, and there's Alice in Chains, and there's Nirvana. I'm going to go with the other group. <laughs> the one with the douchey lead singer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just never liked him. I never liked him. It's my taste. It's my taste. I was never a big Pearl Jam person. I mean, it, you know, if you're going to go Soundgarden, I understand. You're high. Uh, if you're going to go Alice in Chains, you're probably a petty criminal and you probably stole the fucking stereo you were listening to it on. Or in those days, the CD player. If you're a Nirvana fan, you were everyone. Uh, and then there was Pearl Jam. So uh, 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 a guy from Missoula, Jeff Ament, is it? Ament? Is he in the band? He talks about Mookie Blaylock. When we were recording our first record, we had a per diem of $10. We got lunch at the store across the street. We'd buy a pack of basketball cards. When we turned in our tape, we didn't have a name for the band yet, so we put a Mookie Blaylock card on the case. And so we decided to go with it and did a 10-show tour with Alice in Chains as Mookie Blaylock. So there you are. Don't fucking write me anymore. I'm sorry I got it wrong. People get very, very upset about their bands and stuff. I understand. I understand. I also... Uh, said that uh, there, I, only, I didn't. Men- I was talking about Roman history, and I, I barely got any Roman historians. I said, "Never mind Tacitus," which is a terrible thing to say, because uh, as you know, like in is it Harlan Ellison? Anytime you read a dead author, they're alive again in heaven. The minute you pick up their book and open it, right, they, their spirit rises. So, and it makes that weird snorky noise. <laughs> mind Tacitus. Don't never mind him. I mean, if you're going to read this and think it's got history in it, I'm waving the Bible right now, then maybe you could read other books that actually have a little more first person. Um, 
Uh, here's just a few Roman historians. Suetonius, uh, who wrote The Twelve Caesars, Cassius Dio, who wrote Alexander's book, and, and many other books. We're going to get to Cassius Dio later, because I'm going to talk about some other things he wrote. Uh, Livy, uh, Sallust, Plutarch, who wrote The Lives. And I don't think all of the lives are extant, but Plutarch's quite good, uh, writing well after the fact, and not even Roman. I think uh, born a Greek speaker. I can't remember where he was born. but uh, And then a couple of modern ones for you. Robin Lane Fox, who's quite old now, but you see him on a lot of History Channel things. His history books about ancient Rome are great. Great. Uh, wrote a good one about uh, Hadrian. And then Will Durant, if you ever get a chance to read Will Durant. I know I'm not cracking the, uh, the biscuit open here on this, but a lot of people don't read at all. So, <laughs> And they say to me, what should I read? I like books, too. Uh, <laughs> Will, the reason why I like Will Durant and his wife, uh, um, Ariel, let's not leave her out, who collaborated with him, um, is because he's a humanist. Will Durant says the most extraordinary things in the 30s and 40s about history that, you, that historians don't write now. We have historians now who are rewriting history to make sure it's more right-wing and shit like that. History, as I've said a million times, is already right-wing. It's written by fucking white guys. What do you want from it? Um... So Will Durant wrote a book called Caesar and Christ, uh, which is his Roman history book, and it's quite good. And I'm paraphrasing the line. I don't have it with me, and I didn't bring the book tonight. But he says, uh, uh, paganism, Christianity is paganism's last great uh, creation, right? The last great creation of the pagan world is Christianity, and then that's what we get, right? Um, And this brings me to this point, which is someone wrote me a question last week. If I can find it, I'll die a happy fucking camper. Uh, And I can't believe I said that, because I've never actually used that phrase. I've never said, hey, gang, and I've never said happy camper in my life. (laughs) Hey, gang. Uh, And where is it? It was somewhere. I've dug a bunch of old questions out here. If it's not too personal, not that fucking one. Uh, well, it was about if you could be in an army, uh, what foots? If you could be in an army, I'm paraphrasing the question, which which army would you be in? Oh, here it is. Uh, emissary proofs. Eric wrote this. If you were conscripted to fight in one war from history as a common foot soldier, in which war would you least wish to fight? And I said World War One. I, I said Civil War. Uh, I said that Alexander's men uh, loved him. I said Napoleon's men loved him. And my wife reminded me, hey, Greg, why don't you just fucking write a Frank Miller comic book since you forgot all the women uh, leaders, uh, the Amazons and whatnot. Now, uh, these wouldn't be armies that I would least like to be in, but I'm talking about armies where the army had, as they say uh, so popularly, a fanatical devotion. uh, To their leader. And one is Joan of Arc, whose birthday was last week. Um, In fact, about five days ago, I think. What is it, the sixth or seventh? It kind of moves uh, look at look at Joan of Arc just uh, for a second 600 years ago she's born right she died at 19 mm. there's no evidence whether she even had a period a lot of people like to say she was a man which is horrible she wasn't a man she was a girl um she, she was uh, po- quite likely illiterate, uh, not particularly couth, as we would say, since she was raised uh, way out in the country. Uh, a giant tree stood, I don't even know until this century, that she, that she said she heard the voice of Michael the Archangel underneath. And by the way, went to the fucking fire saying, I heard those voices. To the end, she would not recant that part. And um, she's an emblem of everything that's good and right and true, right? I mean... We like to, to, to put women in different characterizations, right? Either they're the hot chick and, God, I'd like to bone her and then I'd like to cheat on her and then have babies with other women, you know? <laughs> or, 
oh God, she's 38. She's so old. What a ragged old thing. I could never get with her because, oh my goodness, you know. Uh, and then there's the, uh, what, what's the line in the First Wives Club? Uh, there's three ages of women in, in show business. Babe, DA, and driving Miss Daisy. Uh, yes, I'm quoting the First Wives Club. Which is a very good movie, goddammit. I like the First Wives Club. All the vodka bottles in the garbage can. And Goldie Hawn says, I had people over this weekend. And Bette Midler goes, who'd you have over? Guns and Roses? It's funny. It's funny. It was a 90s movie. That's why gun- Guns and Roses. It was the 90s. Uh... In any case, you know what I'm talking about. We put women in different categories. So everybody likes to put Joan of Arc in these weird categories and infer all the stuff about her. Let's get to the facts. Uh, 600 years ago, during the Hundred Years' War, um, excuse me, England had France on the goddamn ropes. They didn't have a crowned king. They were cut up into a million different fucking duchies and, and principalities and whatnot. And she went from her village to the local fucking magistrate, got him to help her, got all the way to the fucking king. When she got to the king's chambers, she was admitted. Another guy was sitting on the throne and she went, that's not the king. That's the king over there. And she identified him, right? Without knowing, there's no photographs then or drawings of the fucking king. And that king was a pretty weird, indolent, little kind of wimpy Charles. He gave her the army. And uh, they had been able to uh, overthrow the English. In a couple of weeks, she was able to do what the army hadn't been able to do by organizing the fucking troops. This is a 17-year-old girl. (laughs) So let's not diminish her by saying she was a man. Let's not diminish her by saying she had a dick. She didn't need a dick. She had what Prince called a pussy control. Are you ready? Uh... She got an army of salty, seasoned fucking French dudes with maces and crossbows to womp shit for two fucking years on the English, got all the way to Reims, had the king fucking crowned, was there at his coronation, then was captured by the Burgundians, turned into the fucking Inquisition, and then you know the rest of the goddamn story. There's a book that you can get. It's at Book Soup at the Counter, actually, here in Los Angeles, and it's just all of her writings, meaning all the things she said when she was on trial, right? Because there's a detailed transcript of her confessions and and that were extracted from her and she said quite a lot of things all a lot of the things she said in her lifetime were written down by other people uh speaking of a fanatical devotion to the troops um she said explaining her generosity to the poor i've been sent for the consolation of the needy when was the last time you heard a leader of men say that (laughs) obama never says it yeah that made the room go fucking quiet (laughs) it's true though right it's true Shouldn't he say that? I mean, Lyndon Johnson used to say things like that. Lyndon Johnson used to say the poor need help and stuff like that. He was president too. You never, ever hear a president say anything like that, or even a politician very rarely. You do hear people say it, obviously. Joan speaking to her captains. You've been at your council, and I have been at mine, right? Hers. Now, be assured that the council of my lord will fulfill itself and prevail, and that yours will fail. To Father Pasquale the night before the attack on Terrell, rise tomorrow very early, earlier than necessary, and do the best that you're able. It'll be necessary to keep always near me, for tomorrow I shall have much to do and greater need of you than I have ever had. Tomorrow, the blood will flow from my body above the breast. Joan speaking to her host in Orléans, the moment of the attack on the Terrell. Keep it until evening, because this evening I'll bring you a godon and will return by way of the bridge. That's a trophy. Joan of Arc speaking to her soldiers during the battle. Have good heart. Do not fall back. You will have the Bastille soon. Right, the Bastion? That's her yelling at her troops. A teenage girl. 
Jones' only comment about Orléans later at her trial, since her judges tried to avoid the subject, I was the first to place a scaling ladder on the bastion of the bridge. Remember how I always talk about Alexander being the first goddamn nutcase fucking general up the fucking rope? <laughs> Joan, I was the first. Leading an entire army. Arrows, my, mind you, picture a battle in the 1400s. Boiling oil has been prepared above the ramparts by insane English people. <laughs> Flaming pitch, the Greek fire, right? is coming over the walls in catapults. They are throwing turds. They are throwing rocks. They are throwing bits of metal. Whatever primitive cannonade they've got, they're using that as well. Crossbows, right? Windlasses that have very tight tension that they can fire an arrow through someone's fucking armor are flying everywhere. Fucking spears are coming down. Pikes, lances, halberds, every manner of goddamn projectile, weapon, and missile is flying. And Joan fucking walked up to the rampart of the bridge and put the, the fucking ladder and was up first. And she didn't always carry a sword. Sometimes she carried a banner that said the honor of God on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she was a badass adore. Yeah, fucking A. Uh, and then recovering from her wound and seeing the army in retreat, my standard, my standard. Uh, here we go. Illiterate and uncouth, da 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 da. This is the part I love. To avoid having to use her sword, she led the army carrying a 12 foot long banner. The party of the kingdom of heaven is what it said on the banner. Witnesses said she was luminous in battle, light not glinting off her armor so much as radiating from the girl within. Her enemies spoke of clouds of butterflies following in her way. <laughs> A curiously beatific report from men who said she was in league with the devil, right? They always said she was, you know, when they, when they tried her, they said, you know, it wasn't the Lord you heard, it was the devil and you're his tool and shit. The English thought she was fucking devil incarnate, man. They hadn't lost a battle. In the aftermath of combat, she didn't celebrate victory, but mourned the casualties. Her men remembered her on her knees weeping as she held the head of a dying enemy soldier, urging him to confess his sins. Her courage outstripped that of seasoned men at arms, her tears float as readily as any other teenage girl. That's awesome. Uh, she is, along with Saint-Denis, Saint-Martin of Tours, Saint-Louis IX, that sainted king, and Saint-Theresa, one of the patron saints of France, captured by the Burgundians, sold to the English, tried by an ecclesiastical court, burned at the stake when she was 19. Uh, she asserted she had visions from God that instructed her to recover her homeland from English domination. Late in the Hundred Years' War, the uncrowned King Charles VII sent her to the Siege of Orléans as part of a relief mission. She gained prominence when she overcame the dismissive attitude of veteran commanders and lifted the siege in nine days. Fucking A, man. You brought a teenage girl to lead the army nine days later. Hey, this is all right. There's plunder and booty. Uh, the Passion of the, uh, Joan of Arc by Carl Dreyer, which I've never seen, uh, and many people are applauding for it here, a masterpiece, uh, Maria Falconetti is supposed to be, I watched a clip of it last night, and it was extraordinary. I, I have to watch it now. Um, Mark Twain was fascinated by Joan of Arc and said, wrote, she is easily and by far the most extraordinary person the human race has ever produced. Under a pseudonym, he wrote The Personal Re Recollection of Joan of Arc by the Sieur Louis de Comte. Uh, 
Twain said, I like Joan of Arc best of all my books. Not Life on the Mississippi, not The Innocents Abroad. Fucking Joan of Arc was the book he liked best. Uh, it furnished me, and he was not, as we would say, uncynical. Mark Twain had a jaundiced eye, baby. Jaundiced eye. Uh, 12 years in the preparation, two years in the writing. The others need no preparation and got none. <laughs> he said about all of his other books. And I'll remind you of this. You can read it for free online. Uh, uh, one last thing about it before we get off Joan of Arc. And really, you can't spend enough time talking about Joan of Arc. They had a big birthday party for the, uh, the other day in France. And Sarkozy came out and everything, right? And he, and he feebly tried to align himself with Joan of Arc, even though, you know, we all know he's no Joan of Arc. First of all, her dick was much more fruitful. Uh, and then the right-wingers uh, got together near a Joan of Arc. You know, that's always going to happen. They always like to, because she liked the Bible and whatnot. Uh, when we reflect, her century was the brutalist, the wickedest, the rottenest in history since the Dark Ages. We're talking about the 15th century. We are lost in wonder at the miracle of such a product from such a soil. The contrast between her and her century is the contrast between day and night. She was truthful when lying was common speech of men. She was honest when honesty became a lost virtue. She was a keeper of promises when the keeping of a promise was expected of no one. Does that, any of this sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> Does the 21st century have any smack of the 15th century at all to anybody? She was a keeper of promises when the keeping of promises was expected of no one. She was honest when honesty became a lost virtue. We live in the world now where people say, what did, um, uh, what did Santorum say the other day? Well, I don't want to give black people the money and have them, uh, get black people money and then they don't have to work for it and whatever. And then a few days later when I didn't say that. But we saw you say it. It's on tape. We heard you say it. She gave her great mind to great thoughts and great purposes when other great minds wasted themselves on pretty fancies or poor ambitions. She was modest and fine and delicate when to be loud and coarse might be said to be universal. She was full of pity when a merciless cruelty was the rule. She was steadfast when stability was unknown and honorable in an age when forgotten what honor was. She was a rock of convictions in a time when men believed in nothing and scoffed at all things. She was unfailingly true in an age that was false to the core. She maintained her personal dignity unimpaired in an age of fawnings and servilities. She was a dauntless courage when hope and courage had perished in the hearts of her nation, spotlessly pure in mind and body when society in the highest places was foul in both. She was all these things in an age when crime was the common business of lords and princes, when the highest personages in Christendom were able to astonish even that infamous era and make it stand aghast at the spectacle of their atrocious lives, black with unimaginable treacheries, butcheries, and bestialities. Uh, that's what makes her so great. And that's what makes people now uh, uh, that stand for something so great. We live in the same kind of time um, when crime is the common business of lords and princes. Just change lords and princes to modern things like businessmen and government officials. And you know exactly what I'm fucking talking about. This is not a time of honesty and transparency. This is not a time of good and rightness and great thoughts and great purposes. This is a time of, of icky venality uh, and lying and capitulating and, and compromising and bullshitting. And uh, everyone who stands tall in this era uh, deserves that kind of respect. And that's the kind of person Joan of Arc was. The other one that had a fanatical devotion of her men was Boudicca. Uh, now, Boudicca was a queen uh, of... in. Um, 
in England in the olden times. When I say the olden times, I mean during the Roman occupation, right? And this is from Cassius Dio's, where we get back to Cassius Dio, his Roman history. Uh, and he wrote from 153 to 230, which is largely after the fact, but this is Roman history. This is all history. Now, uh, when you, if you go to London and you stand next to the House of Parliament, that august place full of lots of men of wealth and power, uh, where David Cameron stands with his cock lying in his fucking hand, as Tony Blair did before him, and Margaret Thatcher with her lying cock in her fucking hand as well. And then, fantastically, in front of Parliament, as I've said, there's a statue of Churchill scowling at them. Right in front of Parliament is a statue of Cromwell, which ought to put fear in anybody's fucking... Uh, and then Big Ben stands there. Well, it's the clock, right? They're thinking the bell. It's not the clock's now called Big Ben. It's the bell. Yes, I know. Everyone calls the clock Big Ben, so we're going to call it Big Ben as well. Across from that on the Westminster Bridge on the other side is a giant chariot with a six-foot-tall woman in it with wild hair fucking leading a team of horses on in mad fucking full-flight fury, and that is Bodica, except her name is spelled Bodicea there. Now, it gets misspelled a million zillion different times. Now, the popular pronunciation, I guess, or popular spelling is Bodica, B-O-U-D-I-C-C-A. Uh, a terrible disaster occurred in Britain. Two cities were sacked. 80,000 of the Romans and of their allies perished. This is a lady leading this army. The island was lost to Rome. Moreover, all the room was brought by the Romans by a woman. A fact which in itself caused them the greatest shame. But the person who was chiefly instrumental in rousing the natives and persuading them to fight the Romans, the person who was thought worthy to be their leader and who directed the conduct of the entire war was, he writes, Budiaca, a Briton woman of royal family and possessed of greater intelligence than often belongs to women. Now remember, he's a Roman writer writing in the, one, in the second century. The Romans were not keen on letting women have a big stake in everything. You were lucky if your husband fucking died and you could keep some of the money. I mean, they didn't let women like be in the Senate or anything like that. Now, it wasn't that women, women didn't have power. There were some that were amazingly powerful, Livia and whatnot. But, uh, 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 you know, Caligula's, I mean, Caligula's, Claudius's wives, although they were kind of hoary, they, uh, they certainly had some power. That's how they felt about women, that women some, somehow had less intelligence, even though, of course, they relied on them utterly. Uh, firstly, da 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 uh, Dio felt great shame in being beaten by a leader who was a woman this show. Why, thank you. The gift of booze. <laughs> this shows us during the time the attitudes toward women were very negative, as though they were thought as unequals and not as superior to men, and certainly not capable of leading a rebel army. Once again, the text is shown again that although the Romans dismissed Boudicca as being worthy, they thought she was possessed of great da 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 uh, the Romans knew who they were dealing with. Let's see. We British commanders uh, are used to women commanders in war, goes on to say. This is from an ancient text. This is what I, a woman, will do. Mm? Moreover, all this rumor was brought upon the Romans would cost them the greatest shame. She was a strong, intimidating woman who led her army methodically and put up a great fight. She was also supposed to be enormously tall, had giant, wild, fucking ginger hair down to her waist, and wore an enormous fucking necklace of silver. That was how you knew she was high-born. They rode around in chariots. They finally got beat by a couple of legions who organized against them. They led a wild-ass fucking Britain attack against them all, uh, ass over tea kettle. And the, the Romans fucking lined up and knocked them down. And that was how she finally got ended. But... The thing that I like about her most is she drove all the way across Britain, drove the, uh, the Romans back, and if you were a Roman collaborator, she pulled your arms out. <laughs> so Bodica was badass. They keep talking about making a movie about Bodica, but I don't think they are. 
there was a movie about Hypatia, though, who I was talking about earlier last year uh, with Rachel Weisz. And then, of course, I think they're making the Cleopatra movie with um, uh, Angelina Jolie. So we'll get a few queens in there over the years. So there was two armies where the men were fanatically devoted to women. Uh, would I have wanted to be a foot soldier in either of those armies? I don't think so. I don't want my arms pulled out. I don't want to get hit with a crossbow. I don't want a fucking Roman legionary sticking his fucking gladius up my fucking sternum. And I certainly don't want boiling oil anywhere near me. First of all, if I had been born then, I would have been staked to a hill after about eight minutes. By the time they realized when I was nine years old that I couldn't see shit. Wasn't going to go well for the nearsighted in those days. <laughs> we were talking about uh, the, the, uh, the, the qualities of pity and mercy that Joan of Arc... Now, mind you, she led armies and she wiped people out, but she also was a very religious person. This is the 10th anniversary of Guantanamo Prison today. Uh, there was a big protest in Pennsylvania Avenue. When I say big, there was 800 people in Washington, D.C. today. A crowd of rain damage protesters marked the 10th anniversary of the arrival of the first 20 detainees. Isn't detainee a great word? Oh, I'm sorry. Could you hold up for a second? Do you mind if I detain you briefly over here? Oh, not at all. I'm a detainee. I'll be moving along presently. Attende, detainee. Oh, allez, detainee. Detainee means prisoner with mask on their head, force-fed through a tube, kept on their knees all day, with loud music playing and then whipped summarily and waterboarded, as we know, waterboarded. Uh, we commit torture, just like the Nazis did in all those old movies where we thought they were so mean, just like the Japanese did in all those old movies, just like the Ruskies, the Iranians, the Chinese, all the bad guys, you can the North Koreans, all the bad countries that are bad, that don't love freedom. We love freedom, so it's okay if we do it. Protesters voiced anger with President Obama to failure to close the prison. And I'm going to read this sentence very slowly so you understand it. Which he promised to do during his 2008 presidential campaign. And with the approval last month of the National Defense Authorization Act, which codified the U.S. government's authority to detain prisoners, including U.S. citizens, indefinitely without trial. To detain prisoners, including U.S. citizens, that means you and me, indefinitely, without trial. Do you remember the writ of habeas corpus? Do you remember the Constitution? Do you remember anything? Well, that's all bent over and been violently fucking entered. <laughs> with a giant fucking Obama missile of fucking bullshit is what's happened there. Um, they say that it's to protect us, but protect us, meaning us whom? The 1% of the population with all the money that supports him or us? Because we can be detained like anyone else. You may have noticed, uh, for instance, just two days ago in Oakland, uh, one of the occupied members was uh, detained, if you will. Let's just call it what it is, throwing someone in prison and closing bars on them and not letting them see the light of day for a while. He's been in for, what, four or five days now? He was uh, accused of having a quarter of a stick of dynamite on him that went to trial yesterday and his lawyer spoke. Uh, this was on NPR this morning uh, or on uh, KPFK. I listened to it this morning, so you know I'm not blowing it out my ass here. Um, no charges were filed. They never filed the charges. They just laid those charges on him, and he's still in jail. So when we talk about the authority to detain prisoners, don't think it doesn't mean you and fucking people you know, okay? That's all I'm saying. Uh, 
Detain is a, is a shitty word. Imprison is a better word. Incarcerate is an even more accurate Roman word. Because the carcere is where you put people in ancient Rome. Uh, Guantanamo is part... Uh, Vincent Warren is the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Remember those? A legal advocacy group that, advocacy group that represents some of the Guantanamo detainees. Guantanamo is one part of an illegal, inhuman, and unjust global detention policy. Our message, no excuses, shut it down. Now, if we want to be the good guys and strap on the six guns and drone bomb people in other countries and bring freedom and shit like that to oil-bearing nations that need oil liberated, then <laughs> oughtn't we close down our fucking torture prison camp that the whole world fucking knows about? We also have one in Bagram in Afghanistan that's still open as well. There's two torture prison camps that we have where we torture people incessantly. Uh, anyway, on that happy note... <laughs> Uh, let me read you what the government said about it. Uh, let's see. Uh, pr- pr- Press Secretary Jay Carney dismissed criticism Obama had broken his campaign promise. Remember what we were talking about a minute ago about honesty in an age of no honesty? Remember his campaign promise? He said, I will close Guantanamo. Here's what saying Ob- Obama's commitment to closing the facility is, quote, as firm today as it was during his campaign. <laughs> well, in light of the National Defense Authorization Act and in light of the fact that it's still open 10 years later, that commitment may be firm. But the reality of it is as limp as a fucking Coke boner. (laughs) As insubstantial as a fucking secret told to you by a fucking tubercular moth. (laughs) The president's commitment hasn't changed at all. It's the right thing to do for our national security interests. Senator Lindsey Graham, an Air Force Reserve colonel and military lawyer, the only member of Congress to have served active duty in Afghanistan and Iraq, is among those who argue Guantanamo must be kept open. In an article in the National Review, Graham wrote, maintaining a detention facility where captured combatants could be held and interrogated was essential to the war against terrorism. Given the current political environment Guantanamo Bay is, despite its problems, the best prison available in the war on terror, really. How proud we all are in America. Uh, this reminds me of something Leon Panetta, the Secretary of Defense, said two weeks ago when we pulled out of Iraq finally at the cost of trillions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives, and zillions and zillions of poor, amputated, and injured American fucking soldiers. God bless them. Uh, it was worth it. That's what he said. Iraq was worth it, and this is the best prison available in the war on terror. So I wouldn't go thinking too much on your own if I were you. <laughs> Our public interest, our security. The last 30 years, the vast majority of U.S. workers have gotten poorer. Um, Let's see here. Yeah, you're starting to laugh and I love it. (laughs) Indiana University studies, 46 million Americans are living below the poverty line, up 27% since the start of the recession. Minorities among the hardest hit. More than one in four African Americans and Hispanics is officially recorded as living in poverty. So who's security? Do you think people who are living in poverty are afraid of the Al-Qaeda? Or terrorism? Think that's chief on their list? $360 million represents a fraction of the $31 billion in active U.S. contracts the task force reviewed. And these are the uh, uh, contracts that are given to the military this year. The Defense Department announced it had selected 20 separate contractors for a new transportation contract potentially worth $983.5 million. In 2010, Goldman Sachs chief Lloyd Blankfein, remember Goldman Sachs? 
received $9 million in, uh, uh, for a bonus. A bonus. A bonus. Let's go back and look at these two sentences. 46 million Americans are living below the poverty line. Goldman Sachs chief Lloyd Blank finds bonus was $9 million. Uh, the pension payoff for uh, the chairman of British Petroleum, Tony Hayward, the one who had to resign after the uh, oil rig exploded in the Gulf, fouling the Gulf and killing 11 people that were never really explained away, received $1.6 million in salary. The average salary of the oil services industry is $57,000 a year. Remember he said, can I go home and I don't want to be here and can I go... <laughs> so about this security and about us and us and our interests, our national interests, seems to me there's two national interests. One, where people get $9 million bonuses and one, where no one has any goddamn money. And then another, where a bunch of people are kneeling with fucking hoods on their heads all cocking day long and we keep talking about how we're special. And how America brings freedom to the world and shit like that. Freedom for fucking whom, you fucking chunts. All right. On that note, I was never going to go that far tonight. But it got a little carried away. That was the boring, preachy part. I have a lot of questions here. Some from last week that I didn't finish. Uh, uh, Dearest Proopsies. Audible. Oh, I'll do that. I was just going to try to put some space between uh, the tortured victims of Guantanamo. <laughs> Matt, my producer's trying to get me to do our ad now. <laughs> well, you know, Audible listeners are concerned, informed listeners. Audible.com, uh, as you know, has uh, tens and hundreds of millions of thousands of titles of books that you can buy, that you can listen to uh, on tape and all kinds of things. Technical history, every, every manner of genre of literature um, and, and they're quite good and I, uh, I brought one along here tonight that I'd like to read from if you go on audiblepodcast slash smartest audiblepodcast.com slash smartest audiblepodcast.com slash smartest uh, you'll get a free book download um, and they have uh, zillions of books I was going to read you from Suetonius I was going to read you from On the Road and then I realized the funniest of course Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> Because Jeannie asked me what books I read when I was little. Well, I read Edgar Allan Poe when I was little. Of course you did, Greg. Uh, and I thought uh, that Edgar Allan Poe, uh, arguably maybe the, uh, I think, what was it, Paul Bowles said, uh, the greatest American writer. A lot of, you could argue that he is. Um, certainly invented the detective story in a lot of ways. Uh, horror and fantasy have never really recovered or wanted to recover from Edgar Allan Poe because he laid down the goddamn law. Uh, mind you, he's well before H.P. Lovecraft. He's well before everybody. Uh, even, um, uh, uh, what were they showing last night? Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. Uh, who's that marvelous writer? Richard Madison. Uh, way before him. Uh, I thought it'd be funner, of course. They do have an audible download a book of, uh, of Edgar Allan Poe, but it, it's a bunch of different people. So I'm going to read it as Jeremy Irons because it'll make it funnier. <laughs> I'm not going to read the whole story because it would take the rest of the goddamn show. But I'm going to read you some lengthy paragraphs from a little story. This is a book called uh, Tales of Mystery and Imagination, which means you're not going to sleep. <laughs> Mystery and Imagination, read Jules Verne. 
if you want mystery and imagination. If you want to sit in a corner cowering the rest of the night, your teeth chattering, looking wildly at the pets in your house, scared to go to sleep, scared to even phone your friends because you don't know what they're up to, then read Edgar Allan Poe. That's how powerful he is after all this time. He was known as the Raven in his own time, and he, and he was really flamboyant. He wore a cape and a hat and shit like that. Uh, let's not get into his personal life too much, because it's hard to defend some of it, but let's just go... He loves slavery. He loves slavery. This is from the Black Cat. This hideous murder accomplished. Oh, yeah. Oh, here we go. I'll go one more back. Uh, my uncomplaining wife, alas. One day, this is his wife, he goes to the cellar with her. She accompanied me on some household errand into the cellar of the old building, which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs, and nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness. <laughs> Uplifting and axe, and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand. I aimed a blow at the animal, which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I had wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded. <laughs> by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. <laughs> She fell dead upon the spot, without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished. I set myself forthwith, and with entire deliberation, to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbours. Many projects entered my mind. At one period, I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it into the well in the yard about packing it in a box as if merchandise, with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. Now to the end. Spoiler alert. <laughs> No sooner had the reverberation of my blood... The cops have come by this point and are, and are checking out the house for the millionth time. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb. By a cry, at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child. And then quickly swelling into one long, loud and continuous scream. Utterly anonymous... Anonymous... Anomalous, an inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. 
Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party upon the stairs remained motionless, though extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, <laughs> stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. <laughs> If only Jeremy Irons read the audible version. How much time we got, Maddie? Yeah, I bet we are. This will be some special uh, app stuff. Have we? Do we have any app stuff? Uh, yeah. Why don't you do a couple for the free and then a couple for the? Oh yeah, no. Well, if you have uh, the Proopcast uh, app, and there's also a Proopcast Android, uh, there is special stuff that goes only to you, and some of it will be what I read here. It'll also, of course, go only to this live crowd here. <laughs> Then later you can listen to it again on your app and go, I liked it better live. <laughs> uh, let's see. That question was from last week. Uh, after, okay. Let's see. What do we got here? Uh, uh, if you wish to uh, question me or put a question to me, it's smartestatespecialthing.com. Smartestatespecialthing.com. And uh, uh, Matt and Ryan troll through, or rather Ryan trolls through, I think, all the questions and, and selects the most delicious and uh, juicy and Vitamin E enriched of all the questions. Martin asks, uh, Your Eminence, yes, my child? <laughs> what is the most unusual place or way in which you have scored some kind bud during your travels? <laughs> wow. I don't, uh, I don't read these beforehand. That came as a complete shock to me. <laughs> I don't, actually. Uh, however, I will say this. There's people in this audience who have delivered me kind bud in recent weeks. So there are those amongst you who are very kind indeed with the bud. Uh, the most unusual place or way in which you have scored. 1979? My friend Forrest Brakeman and I were a comedy team, and we were quite awful, and we drove down from the Bay Area and did a set at the comedy store where we died on our ass. Uh, we were driving back, and we didn't have any weed left, and uh, we had taken ass a couple times, gone to Disneyland, but <laughs> this is in the 70s when Disneyland was funner than fuck on acid. <laughs> you could smoke cigarettes everywhere. You, could, you couldn't really smoke weed. They were kind of on your ass about that, but, uh, and no bar, no bar. This was, this was before California Adventure. You couldn't go get a drink. Uh, so, uh, we're driving back and we were in his, um, what was it? Volkswagen rabbit, uh, listening to the cassette deck, you know, uh, you know, it was 79, 78. So I don't know what we were listening to. Probably the Beatles white album or some nonsense. Forrest, Forrest tended to like the Allman brothers and shit like that. Uh, and we we stopped at a rest stop in the middle of fucking nowhere. I have no uh, idea where it was. We we took our last two hits of blotter before we got in the car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was sunny out that day too. This was summer. So when we got back to San Francisco, f one side of Forrest's body was completely cooked lobster red, like cooked lobster. Just wow, that's red. 
It took us all day to drive back, right? We, we took our la- I had two, we ca- I had a little tin that I had like 10 hits of blotter in, right? And we took it all through in the week. This is 10 hits in a week. And um, between two guys. And, uh, and so we took, the, I said, well, I got two hits left. Let's fucking take them. We took them, got in the car. So we're tripping our balls off, right? We're driving up the road. We're listening to, like, I think it was like Steve Miller was like, do, 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 living in the USA. I don't know if you remember that one. Somebody give me a cheeseburger, right? So I'm chain smoking furiously. Because there's no weed. There's no weed. And the one thing you need when you're on acid is some fucking weed to calm down. Even if it's for just a moment before you back up again, right? It's, it, yeah, you can drink on weed, but I mean, on acid, but we're, you know, we're, we're under... First of all, we were like 18 or 19. So we're just kids and we're driving back up. We didn't have any speed or nothing. So we're just fucking on acid, just booming up the road, right, in the rabbit. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, listening to the fucking radio and whatnot. In those days, God, what was on the radio in, in like, 78? Like, not more than a feeling. Uh, probably like a... Spending all my nights, all my money going out on the town. Baby, come back. Any kind of fool could see. There was something in everything about you. Baby, come back. Listen, baby, you can blame it all on me. I was wrong. And then the awesome one at the end. And I just can't live. Player, I believe it was. Player. All night long wearing a mask of false bravado. False bravado? Who the fuck wrote this? Wow. Wow. 78. Am I too early for this one? Dun, 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 dun. One, two, three, four. Bum, bum, bum. What was that? It, just, uh, oh, no, the fire's going out. Mama, I think I'm going to die. And it's just another night. Remember that one? Ian Hunter? Just another night on the other. So there we are, driving up the road. We pull up. Uh, we're just tweaking our balls off. Uh, pull into a rest stop. And there's a black guy in the rest stop. And he goes, hey, you want this? And he gives me half a joint. I come out of the restroom. Thank you. I come out of the restroom and go, hey, dude. And he goes, where the fuck did you get that? My nickname on the trip was Marijuana Jesus. Because I, I was pulling joints out of fucking thin air, man. Like Mandrake the Magician, man. I just like... Like, dudes were just giving me J's. Of course, that was the day. So that, I think that one was a pretty goodie. That was a, that was a kind... I mean, a, a kind bud, it was the 70s. No. In, in those days, what was kind bud? Like, tie. Mesh. Mesh. In those days, red and gold. Red and gold were the colors of weed. Not blue and purple. No, no one ever called weed kush in those days, baby. Uh, that was a goodie. And then, um, oh, one time up in Eureka, I was with Mike McShane and we were doing a gig. And after the gig, we went back up to the room and there was a trucker who drove like logging trucks up there uh, when the, what was left of the logging industry. This is the 80s. And um, he cracked out a bud that was fucking shocking. <laughs> it looked like Charlemagne's hat. You know what I mean? It just, just this tall, glistening, gleaming thing, you know? 
It was like a Christmas fair. And he told us stories about driving trucks, and I thought, you're high as fuck when you're driving. The, you know those fucking double-jointed logging trucks with the fucking huge 150-foot fucking sequoia tree logs on them? And he had the mustache. You guys are pretty funny, man. And he gave us a big a paper bag. A paper bag with a butt in it. I'll never forget how that smelled. Wow. And then Mike and I drove back on mushrooms. And... This is, this is turning into the Doug Stanhope show. With Joe Rogan on the side here. Mike and I had, we had taken mushrooms through the, we did a gig in Redding, we did a gig in Eureka, then we went to a river, I remember we sat in the river, and, uh, and, a, and a bird flew over, and Mike was so fucking high, he went, Condor! <laughs> What are the chances of seeing a, a California condor? I think there's like 10 left and they're all not here. I, I don't know where they are, but they're not on a river in Redding, California. I piss myself laughing. Condor! It was like a buzzard or something. And I was like, I think you'll find condors have 10 foot wingspans and scary heads, Mike. We stopped at a place, and we were, it was the nighttime, and I was just losing my shit on mushrooms. And I'm driving. And Mike goes, I'm hungry, let's stop. So we stop at a short stop somewhere, like in Ukiah or Fort Bragg or some fucking, not Fort Bragg, uh, what's the place below Ukiah, R R Willits? Yeah. And uh, holy fuck, I was so high I can't get out of the car. <laughs> I'm driving, but I can't get out of the car. And I remember what we were listening to. Love Sexy by Prince, right? So it's, uh, Gregory looks just like a ghost and then a beautiful girl the most. What's her lips to say, right? Anesthesia, come to me, talk to me. Right? That one had a, I'm going down to Alphabet Street. I'm going to crown, right? So we're just losing our shit, crying, laughing on fucking mushrooms. He goes into the fucking short... It's a short stop. Remember the short stop? He goes into a short stop, comes back out with a box, right? Like, it's got sweet rolls and fucking yogurt and every... And fucking two big hot coffees. And I looked at that sweet roll, I was like... Because the sweet roll is like... You know, like, it, it looked like... It looked like Rue McClanahan's Twimpus coming out of me, man. Just, <laughs> put her in the back and drive her to Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tennessee. Oh, my God. Drive her. Cat, we need you to rap. And shake your body like a horny pony would. Well, you ought to tell your mom about that. Well, you ought to tell your papa about this, right? <laughs> and Brett, Mike gets back in the car with this fucking box of shit and goes, Welcome to Breakfast A Go Go. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't really score butt on that one, but. Uh, oh, yeah, we did, up in Eureka. Uh, thank you for that question, Martin. Tyler asks, What? It's all presidents tonight? 
I got Van Buren. I got Tyler on my ass here. I got fucking Tippy Canoe. Not all the 1840s presidents. I, I feel like Cooper. Uh, if you could, d- Tyler asks, dear grand God of the Proopland. Well, I wouldn't say I was God. Well, <laughs> vizier, the caliph of the quip, uh, the satrap of the snipe. Uh, if you could model your life after another, whose would it be? I'm trying to understand the question. If you could model your life after another comma, whose would it be? Oh, you mean another person. If, if you could model your life after another, whose would it be? Whom? Whose would it be? Uh, wow. Well, all right. I mean, let's start at the top. It's going to be Martin Luther King in a, a day in like a week. Uh, I don't think there was anything he didn't do. Um, I mean, to model your life, but that's disingenuous to say that, isn't it? To go, I would like to be like Martin Luther King and be the savior of a nation and be the conscience of a nation and be against war and be against the death penalty and lead my people out of fucking bondage into freedom and shit like that and get all the strange pussy in the world. Um, And be persecuted by the FBI. I mean, you can't do everything in one lifetime. Uh, I I don't know. Someone nice. I'd like to model my life after someone who is more forthright than me and more, uh, more bold and, 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 and better at kind of getting shit done. I mean, if it's up to me, I'm going to get high all day and watch TCM. And that's not really going to change the fucking world. I don't think Nelson Mandela, when he was in prison, working in his garden, planning on the day that he would get out and become president of South Africa and then win the Nobel Prize, was thinking, I'd like to really get high and watch some fucking old movies right now. I mean, maybe he did occasionally, but not to the extent that I do. I don't think he was thinking, I'd really like to read another Ty Cobb book. It's an outstanding question. Uh, I don't know. There's some amazing, uh, there's some amazing women in the world that, uh, that I wouldn't mind being like. Because then you could have a kid and whatnot on your own without having to have someone have one for you. Um, not that I ever wanted one. But if I was a woman, I might think about it more. I'm going to come back to that one, Tyler. We're going to start that one. That's a good fucking question. And I'm not giving it the answer it deserves. Uh, thank you, Tyler. I'll come back to that. Did I read this one before? I'm 33 years old and I've never been drunk. How would you recommend I start? <laughs> have I ever read that one, Matt? No. You think I have? No, Ryan? No? no? Whitney, and not Whitney, by the way, Whitney, W-I-T, Whitney, W-I-T-N-E-Y, asked, Dear Mr. Proops, I am 33 years old, and I have never been drunk. How would you recommend I start? Well, slowly. (laughs) Don't try to get it all done at once. Don't try to make up for 33 years. Uh, I would say, let's see, never been drunk. It depends on the kind of drunk you want, doesn't it? I mean, let's be real. Beer is fun to drink uh, and and very collegial. It's groovy when you're watching a game or when you're hanging around with a bunch of your friends. Uh, Beer can fill you up a little bit and uh, your breath isn't so hot afterward. But it is groovy, especially on a hot day. And I would say a Mexican beer with a Corona in it. You might start there. If you want to get really drunk, though, I would have the Corona and then maybe, I don't know, a shot of Patron along with it. 
maybe sip a glass of Patron and have a beer. That'll kind of get you where you're going. The thing is, tequila is the most psychoactive of all the drugs, in my estimation. It's more like drugs than it is drink. All the other drinks are like drinks. Whiskey makes you fucking, you get, ah, oh, and then like, I'm going to fucking, I hate you. And then, and then, uh, when Irish eyes are smiling, shirt is like a morning spring. And, you know, every drink's different. For me, of course, vodka puts me right in the zone. Uh, <laughs> uh, the thing about vodka is you don't taste it that much. And if you mix it, if you mix it well, if you're a fucking pussy, fucking, why not put on a tutu? Uh, it's good with cranberry juice and maybe a little lime or something like that. I would start... Listen, when we all started drinking, when you didn't, when you, when you were 16, you didn't start drinking like the rest of us, we all ordered a 7 and 7, which is uh, Irish uh, Canadian whiskey with 7-Up, and it tastes like soda pop. And then you drink a few and you go, fuck, I'm fucked up, and then you fall over and you barf and shit. <laughs> and then the next drink after 7 and 7 is what, rum and coke? And then you have a rum and coke, and that tastes like coke mostly. And there's a, and you're like, mm, that's funny tasting coke. And then you have a bunch of those, and then you barf and you fall over. Uh, I remember the first wine I drank was like Blue Nun or some ungodly shit at some fucking teenage party in the 70s. And then cheap-ass red wine. And of course, you wake up the next day, and your head's exploding. Um, I would buy a nice bottle of wine. And when I say a nice bottle of wine, I don't mean an $8 bottle of wine. I don't mean two-buck chuck from fucking Trader Joe's. I mean... Spend fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars, maybe. This is your first time. This is your first time, bro. Uh, maybe even thirty dollars. Uh, get a couple of bottles because you said drunk. <laughs> I mean, I'm an experienced alcoholic. I can drink a bottle of wine and be like, okay. <laughs> Let's get something to eat and keep going. I'm not gonna fucking necessarily fall over after the first one. Uh, you said drunk, so two bottles, and I mean two bottles for you. Four bottles if you're with another person. Uh, a nice bottle, uh, maybe a Montepiciano, uh, maybe a, a delightful French wine, a Bandol or something, I don't know. Uh, and then uh, first glass, you know, consider it, consider it. Sniff it, consider it, consider it. The next one, fucking get it down your neck, son. <laughs> get it down your neck, son! I mean, have some... Here's what you need to do. Go to the store and buy a jar of olives and buy a little package of those uh, uh, almonds, those delicious ones, Mar Marcona almonds, right? They're fabulous. They're really oily. Maybe get a little, uh, uh, a bunch of different kinds of cheeses, you know, an assortment of cheeses, some nuts, maybe a little um, uh, Hamon Serrano or whatever. What's this kind of Spanish sheet that's really fucking hard? Um... Uh, you know, get a couple of different kinds of, uh, uh, of of meats and cheeses, some nuts and some olives. Those are the perfect accompaniment to alcohol. Maybe a little, uh, some sexy potato chips. Not the shitty potato chips, but fucking sexy ones, you know. <laughs> the kind of, oh my God, this bag costs $7. <laughs> you know, and then uh, get some sea salt, sprinkle it over everything, because salt is imperative. Because it keeps you drinking more. 
And then also, the, supposedly, the alcohol. Get a really delightful baguette or some French or Italian bread and cut it into thin slices. Get some crackers, some Cars water table biscuits, some kind of neutral cracker. Don't go crazy and get the pepper cracked jalapeno fucking cracker flavored thing with cheese and don't fucking get those. Get, just get regular fucking crackers and let the flavor of the cheese, maybe a jar of Mendocino mustard or some kind of really light, delightful mustard. So you got the crackers, you got the salami, you got the ham, you got the cheese, you got the almonds. And like I said, the first glass, consider it. Like when you're on a date. Oh, I really like you. I'd like to get to know more about you. Mm. Oh, each sip I take intrigues me more. I'm more and more interested than the second glass. God, I'd like to fuck you. (laughs) This has been the smartest man in the world, Proofcast. We'll be back on the 5th, the 8th. We'll be at Sketchfest in San Francisco. We'll be in Bellevue, Washington on the Sunday night that I'm up there. We hope you join us then. I wish you nothing but peace and love. My name's been Greg Proofs. Peace out. (laughs) 